The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. It's the lazy days of summer for me. Not because there's not much for me to do in the garden or in the orchard, but it's lazy days because I feel a little bit tired. The heat really gets to me. I'd rather let someone else do the work right now. So sometimes I wonder, wouldn't it be nice to have literally thousands of volunteers helping me to care for my fruit trees and plants? That way I can have more time to relax, especially now as we get into the hottest part of summer. Well, those volunteers are ready to come and help us all right now. All we need to do is make our gardens welcoming to them. How do you do this? simply by creating an insectary or pollinator garden somewhere in your growing space. This will attract the best friends you will find anywhere, and they are beneficial insects. These little critters will provide garden care services to you for free. They'll help you by offering free pollination services to ensure that your fruit trees and plants actually produce a, produce a harvest, and they'll offer free pest reduction services. That's because many beneficial insects are predators or parasitoids that attack and destroy insect pests. So the topic of today's show is creating an insectary or pollinator garden using native plants. And my guest is native plant expert and writer Lorraine Johnson. Lorraine has written extensively about native plants in her previous books. Her newest book, co-authored with Sheila Kola and illustrated beautifully by Anne Sanderson, is called A Flower Patch for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee. In it, the team shares the secrets of creating insectary and pollinator plantings using native North American plants. Now, during the live show, I would love to hear from you, the listeners, with your questions or comments. So write us right now at instudio101 at gmail.com 
and we will enter you into into today's contest to win a copy of Keeping Bees with a Smile, Principles and Practice of Natural Beekeeping, valued at $25.99 US dollars. So again, the email to write us at is instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name and where you are writing from. So let's dig into today's topic. Lorraine, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. It is lovely to have you here. And it was really exciting to see about to see this new project, a free ebook out there for the world, beautifully illustrated, beautifully written. How did that little project come about? Oh, well, I've been writing books about native plant gardening for about 25 years, and I've seen the kind of interest in native plants shift over the years, like the focus will shift. Some In some periods of our history, it's been low maintenance. Everyone wants a low maintenance garden. So they're interested in native plants because native plants are low maintenance or let's say water conservation. Well, native plants make sense for that reason. Well, for the last couple of years, it's been so notable that people are very concerned about pollinators. And there again, native plants are a very important um, answer or contribution in a positive way to doing something to help pollinators. So um, Sheila Cole and I were both on the um, pollinator protection strategy advisory team for the city of Toronto. Uh, We were helping advise the city on how to kind of promote pollinator conservation and protect pollinators. And um, we decided that there was an incredible opportunity for public education around the importance of pollinators and what individuals could do. So we decided to team up because Sheila is a bee expert. She's a scientist um, and bee conservation is her area of specialty. So that's um, that's what she uh, brings to the project, and then I'm a native plant person, and that's uh, and a gardening person. So that's what I bring, and we combine forces to create this, um, as you say, free downloadable PDF called uh, Flower Patch for the Rusty Patch Bumblebee, and it's all about creating habitat gardens wherever you are, not just at your home, but in community spaces as well, on your balcony, wherever you are. It's really, really lovely. I really enjoyed looking at it. Um, Now, your angle, however, you know, I'm coming from an angle of I want pollinators, but I want parasitoids and I want predatory insects. I want everything. So this book, is it only for pollinators or, or is it to attract all of the beneficials? You know what, our approach and, you know, everything about native plant gardening, as far as I'm concerned, is about promoting biodiversity, creating biodiversity in the landscape. And so everything that you do to create biodiversity by planting an array of native plants, so the more, you know, number of species, different species of plants, native plants that you plant in the landscape, the greater the variety of species of uh, creatures, um, you know, insects and other creatures, you will attract and support in your planting. So um, I do. Um, so I know there's kind of an appeal of this, 
this attitude of, oh, here's, here's something, a book for bees. It's about the whole deal. It's about all insects, all pollinators. It's about birds. It's about, you know, it's about the whole ecosystem and creating ecosystem health within the garden by planting native plants. That's the key. So, and one of the featured insects is in the title, the rusty patched bumblebee. So why does rusty patched bumblebee get all the attention and nobody else gets any attention? Yeah, well, and then the subtitle is creating pollinator habitat. So we do branch out right there, but yes, absolutely. The rusty patch bumblebee, that is, um, it's such, I don't know, in some ways, like it makes so much sense as a kind of flagships, you know, kind of draw people in one because maybe a lot of people haven't heard of it. So it gets your curiosity. The amazing and, you know, really sad and scary thing about the rusty patch bumblebee is that it was actually the first uh, native bee to be listed as endangered in Canada. And it's, it's a bee that Sheila has worked on quite a bit because Sheila was the last person to actually identify that bee in the wild in Canada. That was in 2009. And she had spent the past, you know, number of years looking for it because it used to be incredibly common. When I was growing up, it was one of the fourth most common bees, bumblebees that you would see around. If you saw four bees, one chances are, you know, one of them was a, or, well, whatever. It was the fourth most common bee. And now it is, uh, you know, no, no one's seen it in the wild here in Canada since Sheila identified it. Um, that's con like a confirmed identification of it since 2009. So it's telling us something. It's not, and it's not the only bee or insect that is in trouble. So that's why we named this book. Also just the alliteration, flower patch for the rusty patch, bumblebee, it all kind of <laughs> came together. Well, I think that's really, actually really noble and really profound. It's like we're doing it in the, not in the memory of the bee. We hope it can be brought back somehow, but this is us as warriors fighting to bring back this bee, um, other beautiful insects that really provide so many services to us that, that make our world so biodiverse and beautiful. So as we create our pollinator gardens, we will keep them in mind and the book will talk a little bit about them. So maybe some of the people who download the book will actually be able to say, hey, I got a picture of one of those guys. It came back. There are still some. So wouldn't that be great news? Yes, and Sheila actually runs a project of citizen science um, to, um, you know, with posters of the rusty patch bumblebee and what it looks like and, and uh, you know, report and bumblebee watch. She's also very involved with bumblebee watch and other citizen science projects. So the idea is have people looking, have people connecting with these insects that, you know, when you think about it, the rusty patch bumblebee went, you know, disappeared under our noses people didn't notice it while it was happening. It took Sheila and um, doing that work of looking in the herbarium records to see, oh, where was it found? And then looking, oh, it's not there anymore. So um, I think, you know, that might be happening with a, a lot of species, these small, you know, not charismatic, not, you know, they don't have PR departments for the bugs, you know, and, uh, and so, um, Anytime we look that we as in any time the scientists look 
um, there are trouble signs. And so uh, we're just with this book, we're really hoping to get people involved in creating habitat because that is just such an important thing to do. It's one way you can really have an impact because insects, they don't, bees don't, you know, they don't necessarily fly very far. So your tiny little patch can be really significant habitat. You know, if a bee is going to fly 500 meters in its lifetime, you're important. Whatever you do in whatever little 500 meters patch you're stewarding, whether it's at a community garden or a boulevard, a gorilla garden project or a backyard or a balcony, it's important. It matters. Absolutely. Okay. So creating a pollinator garden to me is a bit of a puzzle. Um, you have to put the puzzle pieces together. And one of the big puzzle pieces is, from what I understand, you need blossoms to be continuous throughout the season. Can you tell me about that? Do they need to overlap? What are we aiming for in terms of attracting those beneficials? Yeah, it is really important to have species um, in bloom for the whole uh, season. And the reason for this is that uh, different bees have different life cycles and different periods when they are out foraging. Um, some, like the rusty patch bumblebee is foraging from, you know, or, or it is active from spring to fall. So it has a long period, but there are other bees that have very short periods of, of foraging for nectar or the, or um, they have different periods of, of nesting and different requirements for nesting and all those things. So the, um, if you have something in bloom from early spring to late fall, that is ideal. You will be creating the most useful habitat uh, for insects. Um, because there's something that needs nectar or pollen at all of those times, right? And Absolutely. so, yeah. So, okay. So we want a buffet that's going to last the whole season. Yeah. Now we want a wide, at least when you're growing fruit trees, when you're growing vegetables, you want a wide array of bees and pollinators. You want the parasitoids, you want the predatory insects so that they can do a lot of battle on our behalf. They can go and they can eat the coddling moth that might be laying their eggs inside your apples or um, all that stuff. We want to have a wide range of beneficials. Now, what does, are there other factors like color, for instance, of the blossoms? Like, tell me about color. Yeah, there are, um, there's, you know, when I said right at the beginning that biodiversity is the most important thing in the landscape, in the pollinator garden, in whatever you're doing. Um, so having this this range of flowering times is one aspect of the diversity, but there are many other aspects to it as well. So as you say, color. So having plants um, with different flowering blooms, I mean, different species of insects are attracted to different colors. I mean, by now, you know, it's pretty well known that something like a a hummingbird, you know, they'll really go for the reds in the color. Um, uh, bees, on the other hand, have trouble seeing that, don't necessarily see that color. So having a range of color um, in the blooms is also very important. Flower shape is another thing. Um, height is another thing. Um, 
So Just, height would actually affect which uh, beneficial insects were attra are attracted to the plant? Um, having that diverse, let's say for nesting. And this is the other important thing. We've got to think beyond, um, or I think it's important to think beyond just the blooms, for example. Um, so the, you know, flowers themselves will provide nectar and pollen. So, but they'll also provide floral oils. There are some species of bees that depend on particular floral oils provided by certain uh, plants um, or the different, uh, the different materials that stems have, you know, some stems are hollow, some are pithy, some are full, like that diversity is important as well. So um, yeah, just as much um, variety as you can build into the landscape, the better it is for the whole landscape. Okay, so we've got a few emails already. Let's have a read. Let's see what we've got. First of all, we've got an email from Gail. Hi, Susan. Very interesting show today. A beautiful topic. Love Lorraine's work. I am listening from South Valley, New Mexico. So much to learn about this topic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gail. We love to get emails like that. That's so wonderful. Now, Thank let's... you, Gail, from me. Thank you. That's You're very so famous in New Mexico as well, huh? <laughs> okay, let's see what we've got here. Um, we've got an email from John, uh, Rollingdom, New Brunswick. Keeping bees with a smile. That's the prize book uh, today. He says uh, he would be interested in the book being that I will be retired, I guess, soon. Many people in my area of New Brunswick are taking up beekeeping. That's fantastic, John. Wow, that is going to be an interesting hobby for retirement. Okay, we've got another email here. Hi, Susan, Wendy from Pennsylvania. Great show. I started changing my garden to natives four years ago. It took until last summer for a variety of new insects to arrive. This year shows even greater diversity. Please thank your guest for me. Oh my gosh, Wendy, thank you so much for sharing the process that you've gone through. So Lorraine, Wendy's saying that it took a few years to attract the beneficials. Is that um, what, what usually happens? You know what, in my experience it, uh, with native plant gardens is you plant native plants and the creatures will find you and they'll find you quickly. My very first native plant garden, now it was, let's getting on 30 years ago now, was in downtown Toronto, literally a block away from the most major commercial intersection in the city. I planted native meadow plants, sun-loving meadow plants, and I had a hummingbird visit that summer, right in like the biggest commercial district in downtown Toronto. You plant the native plants and the creatures will find you and they tend to find you very quickly. Um, uh, also, I mean, you will you will be attracting to your spot creatures that might already be close by. So again, that can happen very quickly too. So um, one thing that can take a bit longer with the native plants is native woodland plants tend to take some time getting established. They're not as fast as the native meadow and sun loving species. Those are very quick to get established. The woodland garden is going to take a little bit longer, 
but is of no less importance for pollinators. It's very, it's you, there's so much you can do in a habitat sense if you have shade as well. Okay, well, we have another email here. Uh, let's see from Janice. Hi, Susan, what a great guest today. This is such very interesting information regarding how far a bee will travel. Who knew? That's amazing. Stay healthy. Oh, and I live in Wilmington, Delaware. Thank you so much, Janice, for writing us. Oh, that's wonderful. So, okay, we talked a little bit. Oh, hang on, we've got one more question. All right, so this is from John. Uh, Susan, can you ask Lorraine if she knows of any insects <laughs> that help to mitigate Japanese beetle? Thank you, John, for writing that question. Now, I don't know if you offhand know if you're, you know, any of our pollinator gardens will get some insect that can chew away at those nasty Japanese beetles that are turning all the leaves in our garden into lace. You know what? I have to say I do not know of an insect predator of Japanese beetles. And I've been hearing a lot about various ways to control Japanese beetles because I co-administer a, uh, a Facebook group called Grow Food Toronto. And right now there is a lot of concern about those beetles and very, and you know, the only thing I've heard work, working is like hand picking and really just going at it. So can I sorry. Tell you what, can I tell you what my favorite way to do it is? John, yeah. hear me out on this. I bring out a bowl of water with soapy water, put in a little alcohol, and then I find those Japanese beetles, they're kind of slow, they're not too bright, and I just sweep them in and drown them in the water. But the fun part is, once I have the water filled with the Japanese beetles, I leave it out in the garden. So if their friends are flying by and they're like, oh, look what happened to Bob, Sally, and Harry, maybe we shouldn't hang around this garden. I feel like psychological warfare is the way to go. Um, there's also, there are Japanese beetles traps, John, uh, people have mixed feelings about them. Um, but, uh, uh, you can contact me, John directly, and I will give you a link for an interesting trap. Uh, let me just see. It's naturalinsectcontrol.com has a Japanese beetle trap that they say works quite well, uh, not at attracting more Japanese beetles to your garden, but actually killing them and getting rid of them. So you may want to look that up. Okay, so we I want to dive into some of your favorite plants. And the way I want to do it is to talk about because it's hard to picture these plants when you talk about them. So we'll talk about the way the flowers look. But before we do, Lorraine, are you okay if we hear a few words from our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible? Yes. Can you hang on the line for that? Okay, so let's do that. Let's go to a little commercial break. And then after the break, we're going to talk about some of Lorraine's favorite native plants for her pollinator gardens. And uh, yeah, so you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is realityradio101.com, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we'll be back right after the break.
if you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to EarthAliveCT.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi there, you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101 and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In today's episode, we're talking about creating an insectary or pollinator garden in your yard or orchard as a way to attract beneficial insects. These amazing little creatures will not only help you by pollinating your trees and plants, but they can also help you protect your plants from insect pests. My guest today is a native plant expert and writer. She is Lorraine Johnson, who is co-author of a new free ebook called A Flower Patch, for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee. In this ebook, Lorraine and her co-author Sheila share the secrets of creating pollinator plantings using North American native plants. Earlier in the show, we discussed a little bit about how different blossom colors can attract a variety of different beneficial insects. 
but the shapes of the flowers matter too. And in this part of the show, we're going to explore a number of the different flower shapes. These are different shapes that attract different types of beneficial insects. So we will discuss that in a minute and we'll hear some of Lorraine's favorite plants. Now, before we dive in, we would love to hear from you, the listener. If you are listening to this show live, send in your question or your comment for my guest, or just email us to say hi, and we will enter you into today's contest to win the book, Keeping Bees with a Smile, Principles and Practice of Natural Beekeeping, valued at $25.99 USD. So to enter the contest, send your email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. Remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. So that's instudio101 at gmail.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. So Lorraine, let's talk about blossom shapes and some of your favorite plants. Like when I'm thinking about blossoms, my favorite type is like a daisy, like a Shasta daisy shape. What kind of insect would that attract? And what are some of the great native plants that could serve that purpose for us? Yeah, well, that kind of classic um, composite flower bloom, a lot of the plants in the aster family that have the, that shape. And I have to say, you know, I really, I, you know, I don't, um, and I, uh, I don't get too hung up in all of the technical terms for the different parts of a flower and whether or not, you know, um, you know, when you refer to a bloom, something like an aster flower, it's actually a composite flower. Like there are a whole bunch of little flowers that make up what, you know, casually we might call one flower. I don't get too hung up in all those differences, but let me say that the plants in the aster family, the composite flowers, they are really great um, for attracting a wide variety of pollinators. They, um, they kind of, you know, they, they've got a lot of, or they tend to have a lot of nectar and pollen resources and they've got it ex, uh, for the most part, kind of accessible really. So bees and hoverflies will be attracted to them. And there are a lot of um, really gorgeous asters that bloom. Um, most of them bloom in the summer and then into the fall. They're very, very useful for that idea we were talking about earlier around um, continuous bloom throughout the season. It's hard to find a lot of native, a lot of native plants that bloom uh, in the fall. And some of the asters, some of the native asters are really good for that. So give me some examples of some of your favorite native plants that would serve yeah. that purpose for us. Because I know, you know, Shasta Daisy Becky is a hybrid. It's what a lot of us have it. It's very pretty. But, you know, if we want to go for a native plant, what would you give us a yeah. couple of examples? Yeah. So as you say, the Shasta Daisy is non-native, but um, some of the asters that I really, really love uh, for late summer bloom, there's one called um, like sky blue aster. Sometimes it's called azure aster. It's beautiful. I love all things blue. Um, but then later, so that's um, for late summer bloom, but then into the fall, if you have a shady garden, and you're trying to find something that blooms in the fall, it's really hard. But there are, there are some great asters, one of which is the white wood aster, and another is the large leaved aster. 
and both of them will bloom for a long period in the fall, in shade, and even once they're established in dry shade. And they are great for supporting um, pollinators. There are a lot of um, bees and other insects that, uh, that um, use the pollen and nectar from, from those native asters. So sorry, what were those ones called that, that would thrive in the shade? The shade? Yeah, one is called white wood aster and the other is called large leaved aster. Okay, we've got a few questions. So we're gonna hop around a bit. We'll come back to our flower shapes. Now here we've got a question from Debbie. Hello, Susan and Lorraine. Thanks for featuring a great topic. I live at 7,600 feet in Colorado. Spring arrives pretty late here. Can you suggest any early flowering plants, preferably native, that might be suitable? Though, the, though not native, what do you think about bulbs in the narcissist genus? Many thanks, Debbie. Cool. Uh, nice to hear from you in Colorado um, at a high altitude, Debbie. Um, I guess what I would uh, suggest to anyone, I don't have a uh, specific early blooming native plant to suggest for your altitude in Colorado. But what I would suggest is there are amazing native plant societies in pretty well every single state in the US and every province in Canada. And even sometimes even more locally, like within a particular region within a province or a state. So I would suggest um, uh, reaching out uh, to the Colorado, the equivalent in Colorado of a native plant society there, which has no doubt compiled all kinds of really great resources. So that's, um, that would be my suggestion. And then as far as, um, and I also know, I would say as well that some of the um, Alpine societies um, have some native plant resources as well for different, uh, you know, for higher elevations. Um, and then your question as well, Debbie, around um, bulbs and how do I feel about bulbs? I think that was the question. Um, you know, I, I really, I really encourage people to plant what you love uh, and and as long as it's not harming anyone or anything or any ecosystem or, you know, go for it. And I hope, you know, all my work is about creating enthusiasm and excitement around native plants. So of course I wanna, you know, I'm hoping people are planting more native plants, but I think the native plants do that work for me in that you plant a native plant and chances are you're going to start planting more when you see all the benefits. And so I would never say to someone, don't plant a non-invasive, non-native bulb if you love it and you really want it in your home landscape for whatever reason. Um, but I would say that there's not a lot of research actually done on how much those non-native plants um, support pollinators in comparison to native plants. There's some research, there's a little bit of research, but so, so don't plant those thinking that it's a sure thing that they're gonna support 
pollinators. And they're certainly not going to support pollinators in the way that you can be sure that the native plants are supporting pollinators. But, you know, do you, give I them think, a try. I think the garden is a place of, um, you know, expression and creativity. And, you know, if there's a plant you love that's not doing a, har a harm, um, and for sure, yeah, there will be a native plant that's going to do more good, actually. It's going to support more creatures. But, you know, let's loosen up a little bit, too. It, you know, like... Not be too not, strict. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I am, let's say, you could use the word strict, whatever, in my own landscape. Like, that's, that's what I love. Those are the plants I love. I want to see those creatures. I want to create that. But if I, I don't know, I love... Um, heavenly blue morning glories. If I had more sun, you know, maybe I'd want some in a little patch for some reason, you know? Anyway. Okie doke. Oh, sorry. Oh, we just got a few more. We got a few more emails. We got quite a few emails. So we got to push through, but yeah. So hopefully that answers your question. And I really also appreciate Lorraine, you saying that put in what you love as well, but try and also integrate the native plants for extra benefit, I think. Well, but, and yeah. it is, it is all about a kind of, um, uh, you know, if you, if you want, if you want to support pollinators, plant native plants, that, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. that's a short, short answer. Perfect. <laughs> if you want to be okay. sure to be supporting pollinators. Okie doke. We got a bunch more questions. So we'll go through those and let's see, we've got, hello, Susan, enjoy your show today. I have several pollen bee nests around the garden. The nests are best for mason and leaf, color, leaf cutter pollen bees. I have flowers to attract the bees. Other than fruit trees, that's all. Uh, don't know of any plants that can help control insect pests on the fruit. Thanks, Aldo in Toronto. So I think what Aldo is saying that he he's not aware which insects would be actually uh, attacking pests. He may be attracting them already and not even knowing about it. What would you say, Lorraine? Are there any specific um, uh, pests, I mean, sorry, insects that he might want to attract to help him there? Yeah, I know that there's a lot of uh, talk about, um, you know, the incredible work that lady beetles do, for example, to control aphids. And um, so again, it, all comes down to the best way to attract the widest uh, variety of creatures and to create this holistic system, to create, um, you know, a, a, a system of connections and interactions and a web, basically, and webs are strong. Biodiversity is strength in the ecosystem. So plant as many different flowers, native flowers as you can, plants to attract the widest variety of insects. And chances are they're gonna be doing all those um, you know, s control measures among them. There's going to be predation. There's going to be parasitism. There's going to be live and let liveism. There's going to be mutualism. There's going to be, there's going to be it all. And it's all important. Um, but one thing I wanted to pick up in that comment though, was around the pollen bee nests, which I think if I'm understanding correctly is, um, you were saying maybe that you had purchased perhaps or made bundles of hollow tubes to create bee hotels they're often called i i'm i'm hearing that maybe those are the same things i have to say you know my 
my feeling, I'm a bit nervous about those. There hasn't been a whole lot of research done, but the research that has been done actually by some uh, Toronto amazing academics like Scott McIver and Lawrence Packer, um, who are both amazing bee scientists here in Toronto, um, where I am. And uh, their research has suggested that those bee hotels actually are not really uh, used as much as we think by actually the native bees. They are um, uh, often um, introduced wasps will use them. And there's a bit of a concern about them ending up as being, uh, if they're not cleaned properly or those tubes not replaced regularly, they might actually be sinks for diseases. Uh, that could harm bees. So anyway, just again, rather than, um, you know, buying something or creating a structure to mimic something, how about, you know, I, or my approach anyway, would be to uh, plant a diversity of plants, some of which will have hollow stems, some of which will have pithy stems, and um, those bees, bees, we'll use them. Another really important actually maintenance thing or in the native plant garden that's really important to keep in mind for bees is to have a patch of bare ground. I know that in the garden, you know, I have sung the, you know, praise of mulch forever and I love mulch. It saved many a garden for me, but it's important to leave some bare earth for ground nesting bees um, to get into the soil to for their for their nests. So um, just if you want to um, if if you want to provide habitat for bee nesting um, or and other pollinators, uh, leave leave the dead leaves in the fall. Leave some bare ground, bare earth in the growing season. Leave some twigs. Don't tidy everything up in the spring. Leave a lot of um, standing twigs for the bees to nest in. Um, have some, one thing that I've recently discovered, or not recently discovered, but have started doing a lot more than ever in the past is leaving beautiful old logs throughout the garden. They look beautiful and they are fantastic habitat. It's incredible the amount of life that there is uh, in the garden when you leave um, beautiful old logs just scattered around. And you know what, now in our cities anyway, it's very easy to find a lot after a windstorm to find some, you know, dead log or wood branch to, um, uh, to put in the garden. Okay, super. We're going to have to take another commercial break. And then afterwards, we can continue the conversation. We have a number more uh, emails to go through. So Lorraine, can you hold on the line another couple of minutes? Yes. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. We're getting such interesting and great information here. So coming up after the break, we'll talk, we'll answer more questions. Maybe we'll cover some more flower shapes. Um, but anyways, you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by the Fruit Tree Education website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. We'll be back right after the break. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. 
Our 62-page full-color catalog includes 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalogue. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Hi everyone. Congratulations on investing in a new fruit tree. Fruit trees are a blessing. With just a bit of skilled hands-on care, they can give you plenty of delicious organic fruit for years to come. I'm Susan Poisner, an urban orchardist from Toronto, Canada. And over the years, I've learned that how we care for our trees when they're young will determine their success and productivity in the long term. If you do want to learn more, there's lots more that I would love to teach you like how to prune fruit trees of all shapes, ages, and sizes, how to optimize tree health, and various different ways to protect your trees from pests and disease. So check out my website at orchardpeople.com where you can watch free videos and read great blogs about growing fruit trees. Or you can check out my online certificate in beginner fruit tree care where in just eight hours, including fun and informative videos, interactive quizzes, and information-packed ebooks, you can learn how to keep your tree healthy and productive for years to come. Happy growing from OrchardPeople.com Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is nstudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everybody. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner. My guest on the show today is native plant expert and writer Lorraine Johnson, co-author of a new free ebook called A Flower Patch for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee. And we've been chatting about why and how to create a native uh, flower patch in your yard as a way of attracting beneficial insects to your garden. So, so far we've chatted about a number of different considerations, the color of the flowers, um, the, the wide variety of uh, flowers during the blossom season. And we've been talking a little bit about flower shapes. Hopefully we'll have some uh, time to talk about that as well. But first we have a contest today and you have just a few more minutes left to enter the contest. 
If you email us now during the live show, you could be entered, you will be entered into the contest to win a book called Keeping Bees with a Smile, Principles and Practice of Natural Beekeeping, valued at $25.99 US dollars. So email us now at instudio101 at gmail.com and remember to include your first name and where you are writing from. And hopefully Gary in the studio, uh, hopefully you are going to help me collect those names so we can pick a winner. In fact, that's going to be Gary. That's going to be your job is to pick a winner. Thank today. you. <laughs> I always like to get everybody involved in the show. So Lorraine, we have a couple more questions. Let's do some quick answers to those questions. Maybe we can do a couple more flower shapes as well. So we have a question again from John. Now, John is very proud, he says, and he is my colleague as a trustee for the Canadian Tree Fund. So he put that in his signature. So John says, uh, please ask Lorraine how best to source native perennials. I'm in the process of covering my landscape to become more pollinator friendly, and I'm having a hard time finding plants. So a quick answer for John. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, my recommendation is definitely to buy native plants from specialty native plant nurseries rather than from regular nurseries where mainly what you will find are cultivars of native plants, which tend to be clones. So you're not introducing biodiversity to the landscape when you plant those. And also we don't know about how they compare in terms of pollinator value. Finding those specialty native plant nurseries, you can do it in a number of ways, Googling specialty native plant nursery and then your area. I'm not sure where you are, John, but um, there's, there are also sources like the North American Native Plant Society online has a resource around uh, native plant nurseries in Canada and some in the States. And then if you're in Ontario, the uh, Facebook group, Ontario Native Plant Gardeners, they have a, um, a resource on that Facebook group in the files of all the native plant nurseries in Ontario. The Credit Valley Conservation um, has a good list, as does the Halton Master Gardeners. So um, it's pretty, yeah, you know, it's not as obvious and clear as finding just a regular nursery, but there are a lot of specialty native plant nurseries out there. I urge everyone to support them. They are doing important work. They're doing it well. They're doing it um, in a way that is like sustainable and, uh, and they need to be supported. So native plant nurseries, Google, native plant nursery and wherever you are and they'll come up or reach out to the North American Native Plant Society. Perfect. Okay, let's get Sandy's email. Good afternoon. I just wanted to say I love your show. It has helped me so much starting my orchard. I love this topic too. I've also started just started beekeeping this year. So it brings it all together for me. I should really do a whole show on beekeeping actually. So she says, I have been starting to add more native plants to my gardens and I'm lucky to have many growing naturally in my area. I'm from Milmer, Ontario. Thank you, Sandy. What a nice email. And we've got one more from Adam. So Adam asks, are there any plants especially favored by Hoover flies? This is from Adam in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, how about Joe Pie weed, which will grow very well where you are. Hoverflies, that's a really good one for hoverflies. So 
Joe Pye weed used to, yeah. That's, now that's an interesting one. So hoverflies are, what are they good for? Are they um, predatory or? Yeah, they are amazing uh, in the, in the garden. Very important to attract. Yes. Fantastic. Um, I, I just yeah. wanted to say a quick word around um, honeybees and beekeeping. Cause I think, and this is actually one thing. So I highly encourage anyone who's interested in exploring this topic more to download the um, the free book that Sheila and I have written because we've got quite a large section in there about some of the very recent and growing uh, evidence around the impact of honeybees on wild bee populations. And so um, anyway, I really encourage people to read up a little bit more on that because something that I've encountered is a lot of people who are concerned about pollinators want to do something to help them and assume that starting a honeybee hive is a way to help pollinators. It's a way to get honey. It is not necessarily a way to help native bees in fact any more than let's say you're worried about wild birds and you got backyard hens those backyard hens aren't good they're a domesticated species it's agriculture it's very different from a conservation point of view there's some there's some really um there's research that's coming out around the impact of um, honeybees on native bees. So it's definitely something to look into and we talk about it a lot in our book. So, so um, definitely, yeah, for people, people, uh, when they go to the page where I'm advertising the show, so people can go to orchardpeople.com slash podcast and you pull up this show, this episode, you will get a live link that will take you to download Lorraine's amazing book. It's a little book packed with information with lots of different suggested uh, plants. And what I love, Lorraine, is each plant you say what different beneficials it attracts. So for instance, for those of you who emailed in and said, you know, I don't even know which, which beneficials I want to attract, you can look up the name of that beneficial and see what it will do, what services it will provide for you. So we have about just three minutes or so left, and then we'll do our con uh, contest. But let's just throw out, we talked about daisies, that shape. What's another shape? Like, for instance, I'm thinking in terms of like humble shaped flowers, like Queen Anne's lace that looks like a lacy doily. Like what, what kind of, would that attract a different type of insect than the daisy shape? So maybe we can do Queen Anne's lace and do one more shape before the yeah. show ends. Yeah, sure. So Queen Anne's lace is a non-native plant, but it is actually a larval host plant for um, some of the swallowtail butterfly. So, um, but the um, so let's so I'll pick a another native a native plant with a, that humble shape. So let's say something like an elderberry, that shrub, and that flower shape, the um, the nectar reward, the palm. It's very easily accessible for. Um, for insects, so it um, it will support uh, hoverflies as well. There was that question about hoverflies. So hoverflies, uh, sm uh, small beetles, solitary bees. Um, so big nectar reward in that shape of flowers for the pollinators. Uh, one I would love to talk about is like a really okay. So especially since um, you mentioned the specialist relationships between some bees and some flowers. Let's take the flower shape of something like a Monarda, 
or a bee balm um, where, I mean, the, my best way to describe it is like, it's a jester's hat, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's an spidery. I find it a little <laughs> spidery as well with these wonderful bright red or purple uh, petals. Yeah. Yeah. Spurs. It's, it's incredible. So those long nectar spurs can only be accessed by long tongued bees or hummingbirds or hummingbird moths or hawk moths. So it's something with a long tongue has, you know, is the only creature that will be uh, getting nectar, but it protects the nectar, that long spur protects the nectar from being robbed or stolen by other insects, because there are insects that do that. Um, but the interesting thing about Monarda is there is a specialist bee whose diet, so it's a small mining bee, and its diet, um, it's, it's like a pollen specialist on Monarda. So that creature in some ways like is very closely tied to the Monarda plant. So um, by having, by planting that really interesting shaped flower, which does all these other things and attracts all these other creatures will also be supporting a specialist bee with that wonderful shaped flower. Then there are also some closed flowers that bees get into. So what's a closed flower? Uh my absolute favorite is called bottle gentian. And if you look at it, it's a native plant, incredible blue flowers, and they are like bottles. They're like closed. So a bumblebee has to pry open the blooms and get in there to get the nectar and pollen and then make its way out again. There's just so much to learn about these different shapes and, they, and what they tell us about interactions. Flowers yeah. that bloom upside down, like some of the lilies. Yeah. So again, so let's say if it's an upside down, or would you say they're bell shaped, the upside down one? So who would that briefly, who would that attract? So pretty much it, things like the butterflies, for example, that can get in, you know, that are good at, you know, um, getting in there underneath, you know, the, the Turk's cap lily, let's say, or um, in the bell shaped flowers, um, again, maybe something that's good at with a long with a long tongue and getting in there. But alternately, alternatively, something like a catkin, you know, the willows that are blooming in the in the spring, early spring, when the bee, some bees are waking up and need need pollen and nap nectar some of the small bees small tongue bees small bees and flies that can access the um the floral resources that are so exposed in a, in a flower shape like a catkin so fantastic wow you powered through you got us a whole bunch of shapes i so appreciate that lorraine you're a star <laughs> um because you knew susan is very interested in flower shapes she wants her flower shapes i appreciate that <laughs> So I want to remind everybody that we talked about a whole bunch of different things and there are a lot of resources on orchardpeople.com. So Lorraine talked about uh, bee condos or bee hotels. If you go to orchardpeople.com and you put in the search, you put uh, bee hotel or bee condo or native bees. I have an article where I interview Scott McIver and we talk a little bit about his study. And I think I titled that, do bee condos actually endanger native bees or something like that? There are ways to do it, but I give you all the resources. So if you want to do it, or if you want to check you're doing it right, you'll get the resources through that. 
So lots of resources at orchardpeople.com. Now it's time for a contest and we had lots of amazing questions and comments. Do we have Gary on the line to tell us? We do. Are we ready? I'll roll the little bucket here. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. We hear you rolling that bucket. And let me pull a piece of paper out here. And oh, what is it? It's John R. from Rollingdom, New Brunswick. Wonderful. And I think John was the one who said he's excited. He's going to be beekeeping as a hobby. So this is the perfect book for him. I am so glad. Congratulations. I'm sorry for the others who didn't win. But next month we have a new show and new books and new contests. So we are so happy. Congratulations to John. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Lorraine, for coming on the show today. Uh, We really appreciate having time to talk to you, to highlight some of these things, to ask you questions. And I, I really appreciate that beautiful little free ebook. Uh, just very briefly, will there be a print version at some point? Sheila and I are working on that right now. So hopefully, but at, in the meantime, it is available for down, free download from Friends of the Earth Canada. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thank you to the listeners. Uh, Thank you for joining me and and Lorraine for the show. Did you enjoy the show today? If so, I would love it if you could do me a huge favor. This podcast can be downloaded from a whole bunch of different podcatchers like iTunes and Stitchers and Stitcher and shows with more ratings are featured more. So I would love it if you could go to your podcatcher and rate and review this show. Tell people why you listen and whether you enjoy it. That would be wonderful and very helpful for me and it will help me keep this show going for many, many years to come and I hope I can. So that's it for today's episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. To listen again or to download other episodes, you can find them at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to digging into a new fruit tree care topic with you next month. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time.
Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.